there's two types of family businesses in my experience. They're motivated by two types of things. So there's one group of family businesses that's motivated by ensuring a future. They have a stewardship mindset, like, you know, they're there to serve and to make sure that the next generation is provided for, right? And then you have the family businesses whose mindset is all about control. Ownership is control and keeping it in the family becomes a very negative kind of a thing, you know, because it becomes keeping it in the family at any price, sometimes at the cost of other people. Welcome to episode 103 of Chaos and Rocket Fuel, the Future of Work podcast. This is the podcast that looks at all aspects of work in the future. It's brought to you by Wanda, and I'm your host, Doug Folks. With me is the CEO at Wanda, Claire Haydar. This episode is our last chance to connect with co-founder of Orbis Terra Media, a global content marketing agency, editor-in-chief of Tharawat Magazine, and family entrepreneur, Ramia El Agami. In the last two episodes, we've been talking about family businesses. So far, we've discovered what a family business is and that it is the most used business model worldwide. The advantages and disadvantages they face and the skills and talents needed to navigate a successful multi-generational business today and in the future. In this final session, Ramya gives us some practical examples of the good stuff happening in family businesses around the world and she explains the different motivations family businesses use to grow and develop. For the last time, over to you, Claire. Ramia, I'm going to move us into the third segment of the conversation and where we specifically look at more of a practical application around your community and what you're building and all the work that you're doing in the background that you shared with us right at the beginning. Can you maybe start us off by sharing specifically about the Women in Family Business publication? Who are you trying to attract to it? Like if you can lay out that persona for us and what would they typically find if they join that community? So I think women in family business, thanks for the question. It's actually a, a question we probably don't uh, talk about enough, right? Like as we as we do these things, so it's very cool to be asked. Like sometimes you have to uh, sort of like rephrase it because it's also changed, right? Like because we started this, like you have to see like women in family business, Tharwa magazine, we started 15 years ago next year and women in family business uh, more than seven years ago, almost eight this year. And it's changed as well because what we were trying to do is really to listen to what people needed. I think what came to us was, you know, the community we kind of always had, because I think women like, you know, we find each other and we sort of like and then we kind of stick together. And it's like it's, you know, and and the content became this bond and this glue between us, like, you know, where we just like we would bond over that content and we would, I guess, like open up to each other. And I always say, like, you know, women in family business, the problem is, is that I will never be able to convey how many interesting conversations are actually happening behind the scenes, right? Like it's the, it's, it's the endless treasure trove of those private conversations between ourselves that are just incredible. But what they did do is they evolved our thinking around what the problem actually is, right? Like so, or what our sense of urgency was. So we figured out very quickly, my sisters and I, and also the other co-founders of WIFB, we figured out very quickly that we did not want to have a glass ceiling discussion, 
right? Because we just don't feel it applies in the same way exactly like it does in the corporate world. Like, again, like you're born into a family business. It's a set of circumstances that is sort of like dealt you, like, you know, hand the cards, if you will. And so we wanted to talk about it differently. So what we try to understand what was actually the problem and what I realized, Claire, and I don't know if you guys have the same challenge on on your podcast and with the content that you create, it proved quite difficult to convince a lot of the women I knew that they actually had something of value to share. And it still is more difficult for me to convince women to share their stories and to share their insights than it is men. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Like it's, it's maybe still there is a discrepancy in terms of like, you know, perceived value or perceived like, you know, have I arrived? Am I capable of sharing sharing insights? But what it does is it feeds further into this gap between how much content there is from the male perspective versus how much content there is from the female perspective. And I know now I'm going to make a very technical argument, but you're all techies here and you all like understand, I think, where I'm coming from. But, you know, we are just shifting into a time and age where literally the next generation is, is using TikTok as a search engine. And everyone else is using the search engines as search engines like Google, et cetera. So, I mean, that's all AI and these algorithms that decide what the answer is to the questions that you're researching. And, and I dare you to ask most people whether they go beyond the first search result page of Google or Bing or like, you know, whatever they're using or DuckDuckGoGo, right? Like, and I think the reality is that a lot of people don't. If you ask questions and people learn this way and kids now learn definitions of things and definitions of business and goodness is this way. And then if you see the content on those first search engine result pages and you see that most of them are authored by men. And that really started to worry us, to be honest with you, you know, where we were like, okay, so we're talking diversity, we're talking inclusion but there's actually a lot of work to do. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of encouragement that needs to go towards women really feeling that they have something additional to say. So I'll give you an example. Like one of the big sort of like counter arguments I get from a lot of women is that they'll say like, oh, but everyone's already said everything about this topic. And this is this is really interesting to me, right? Like because I, I don't think that there can possibly be enough perspectives on, especially on something as important as family businesses, right? Like because you can always learn something new, and there's ultimately no absolute truth about how you're going to make your family business last into the next generation, right? Like so, the more, the better, right? Like, but it's been it's it's proven itself to be. Uh, challenging to to maybe find women who, you know who feel that they can contribute it's becoming better I'm really happy to say but I think that's been one of our main motivations actually Claire like you know is to say like listen there's definitely like inequality there that we need to sort of like start making up because it's it's going to become an algorithmic problem in the future basically where opinions are going to be shaped still are going to be shaped mainly by the male perspective. And I'm not like, this is not me attacking men in any way, but again, it's just a historical advantage that we should be aware of, but that does not have to influence future generations as much as it did ours, I think, you know? Rami, I'm going to continue on the practical side of things. And I'd like you to tell us about a family business that you know of or you've interacted with that you really respect mainly because of the way that they've handled the future of work um, within their business. And so we spoke a little bit about that earlier. 
Uh, so Doug, I think like asking me to pick one family business is almost like asking people if they have a favorite kid, right? Like, so, <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't mind, but like in preparation to that question, I think I, I would love to give you some maybe more generic answers of best practices that I've seen in a few of them, like without maybe like calling up one of them, because that would be really hard for me, to be honest, like, because we know hundreds of them and all of them do great things in their own way, right? Like they try great things in their own way. Perfect. So I think there's like, um, you know, there's various levels of intervention for the future of work for a family business, right? Like, so there's obviously like, you know, the, the owner's level, right? Like, so where as a family, you do things to involve the future owners, the current and future owners into, you know, shaping the strategy of the future of the business, shaping the direction of the wealth and investment and sort of shaping that future, right? Like at the ownership level, then you have the the level where you talk about really sort of like, you know, the executives, the active executives, like, you know, board of directors that are involved in the business at a very high level, right? Like, so that director level. And then you have, you know, the family members or like also the staff that just works inside the family business, right? Like as managers or employees, et cetera. So on those three levels, there's various different things that families do, I feel, that really encourage, that are encouraging and that that I think show best practice. So at the, at the ownership level, what I love to see is that I've seen family businesses create whole next generation academies, right? Like to uh, sort of involve their next gens. They've created incubators, in-house incubators for their next generations to start startups, you know, with family capital and stuff like that and sort of like really bring in that innovation and live that in innovation inside the family business construct. I I thought that was amazing. Like, you know, when the family business becomes this lab for the next generation to just try out things and fail, but also like, you know, just bring innovation and then integrate it into the family, family business portfolio, which I think is an amazing way for families to grow as well. So I thought that was really interesting that, that there's families who do that basically become like, you know, almost venture capitalists for their next generation, which is a, I think is a very forward thinking way of, of doing things. And, and and we see that a lot, actually. We see that a lot happening a lot. A lot of family capital goes in, into venture and a lot of that venture is then taken up by family members. And for me, it makes a lot of sense in my view as well to engage the next generation in that way. And at the higher level, at the, at the director level, et cetera, what I have to say, like what I've really seen is a lot of families that we've worked with have had such a shift towards building those strategies that are focused on ESG, right? Like so much more emphasis on that. That's been so amazing. Like a lot of work on governance I've seen now, you know, that emphasis on like how governance is not just this boring thing that tells us all what rule, well, you know, what rules to work by and stuff like that. But it's this, it's these constructs that help us all work together better, that help us all protect, you know, minorities in the organization that help us all really make things fair for everybody, right? Like, so this advocacy for governance that I've seen at that level, I think has been very impressive and very encouraging. And I'll be very honest, I think I don't want to take credit for that, but I do think that the more involvement of women at that level has really pushed that. Because I think, of course, once you have to, if it's been very male dominated and you suddenly have to include women, there is a totally different type of thinking that comes into it. And I think that opening that up like that has really helped a lot of organizations to thrive and to have these initiatives and really go towards that 
uh, instead of just calling it sustainable because it's multi-generational, to really ask those hard questions about, you know, are we really sustainable? Are we really taking care of the climate? Are we really having a social impact? Like, you know, really being much more uh, vocal about uh, talking about values and setting those values and making and letting those values really trickle down into the organization. And in that respect, I come to the third level, which is basically the employee level and the managerial level inside the companies with people actually working inside the family business. I think I've seen so many different interesting things. I've seen families create open innovation platforms inside their family businesses, right? Like, so where they would literally, uh, you know, and it goes way beyond the suggestion box idea, right? Like it would literally be idea competitions, right? Like where they would, employees got to compete, got to pitch ideas, got to pitch improvements. There's a family business in Saudi that has <laughs> saved millions, they say, they were able to show in a case study, millions of dollars by taking those suggestions for improvements of employees employees so seriously by running them through that platform and actually implementing the changes and, you know, celebrating people for bringing that innovation to the fore. Now, can you imagine how encouraging that is to work in, in, in an organization that will recognize your efforts like that and that will like sort of like encourage you to contribute? I mean, that's hugely encouraging, right? Like, and, and I think another thing that we see as well is like, I've seen family businesses in Scandinavia who are like very adamant about more the direction of like, you know, how they've already had the remote and the hybrid working models way before COVID, that they really endorsed that, like, you know, health in the workplace, huge topic for a lot of family businesses I've talked to, like, you know, how to make sure mental health for the employees is like at the forefront of like, you know, that I don't think that any successful family business you ever have to convince of the fact that their people are their key asset, right? Like a successful family business will know that and they will act accordingly. So you see them talk about mental health, you see them like enable paternity leave, maternity leave, like, and so I'm not enumerating, of course, the good examples. I'm not saying that's the necessarily the norm all over, but there's a lot of good stuff going on, actually. And what I like the most is I think this recognition that, yeah, so this next generation as well, they expect a different workplace, right? Like, and even millennials do as well. And I think that, you know, a lot of family businesses from feeling threatened by it, from feeling like it was entitlement and stuff like that, I think many of them have understood how with small adjustments and sort of like leaning into a certain culture of openness and inclusiveness and values that they naturally have and you know, being purpose-driven, I think they actually are at an advantage in attracting talent, you know, because it's easy to identify with a family business because that purpose is usually there. Like, you know, even if it's not always formulated very clearly, but you, you can feel a sense of belonging very quickly with those family businesses. Yeah, thank you for that. So my my sort of quick follow-up question on that is, you know, you've handpicked and given us some really incredible examples of when it goes right. But is that the norm? Would you say that family businesses generally are more future oriented to a lesser or a greater extent than their traditional counterparts? I'll tell you something, Doug. I think like because I don't have the, there's no statistics about this, right? Like so it's hard to say like. But I think what I see is I see, broadly speaking, if I'm going to be very black and white about it, I see there's two types of family businesses in my experience. They're motivated by two types of things. So there's one group of family businesses that's motivated by ensuring a future. They have a stewardship mindset, like, you know, they're there to serve and to make sure that the next generation is provided for, right? And then you have the family businesses whose mindset is all about control. You know what I mean? Like, it's all about ownership is control and keeping it in the family becomes a very negative kind of a thing, you know, because it becomes keeping it in the family at any price 
and sometimes at the cost of other people, right? Like, so I think that there there are definitely very dark examples, I think, of of entitlement and of nepotism in that respect. But I think like, you can quickly tell with a family what they're motivated by, right? Like, are they motivated by the future or are they motivated by control? And I think when that distinction comes in, like it very clearly shows in the culture of the organization, right? Like, I mean, family businesses who are future oriented, there's a few that come to mind for me uh, in, uh, in Switzerland, but also in the UAE recently. Like, you know, I mean, these are families that like, I mean, they're almost done thinking about what they can do for themselves within their lifetime, like, you know, some generations. And they're literally like, and I'm talking young people, I'm not talking like the older generation, you know, that's on its way out. But even like people in their 40s and stuff like that, they're basically saying like, yeah, we're doing these things to make sure that our children and their children will still have a business or still have something, you know, that they can they can benefit from. And, and you can see that it's not going to benefit them in their lifetime, what they're doing, some of it. And that's really interesting. And that's, of course, like it takes a certain culture to enable that. But then, of course, you have a lot of a lot of family businesses where it's all about who owns what, like, you know, who owns how much am I going to get more than my brother or sister? Like, you know, what is my cousin doing here? Uh, you know, my father doesn't understand me. Like, don't get me started on that part. Right. Like, I mean, that, and then, you know, it's all about control. Right. And that like it's weird. Like you think like, oh, that just happens between the family. But you can feel it in the whole organization. Right. Like Because the weird thing is that a family family that owns a business is much more visible than they think. And I always say like, you know, their culture, the culture that they have between themselves always seeps through into the day to day of the business, whether they are actively involved or not. It's just like, it's a different mode. It's a different mindset and it's different values. And you know, this guy's better than I do. I think like, you know, it's, it's all about setting the purpose and the values and living them for people to, you know, to enjoy their workplace. And I think when that's not there, then, you know, it can be very toxic, actually. So let's face it. Some of the best movies, series, books are based on family businesses that are super <laughs> toxic, right? Like, let's face it. Like, sure. they make, I always say, like, you know, family businesses are all basically movie scripts waiting to happen, right? Like, so much drama. So, <laughs> so much drama. So, yeah, absolutely. Too funny, Rabia. You said it, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so... Ramia, in terms of, we've spoken a lot about these family businesses in relation to how they approach the future of work and general thinking about the future. And you've repeatedly said it, that they tend to be very future orientated in their thinking and their planning. In terms of the execution, okay, so we've spoken about the thinking piece. I want to specifically hone in on the execution piece. Are they leading or following in this area? You know, there's just not one answer, Claire. I'm sorry. Like, I can't tell you, like, it's not a yes or no uh, situation. I think the one thing that I can tell you is like, you know, those that do lead in that area tend to be at the head of the pack. Because again, I feel like when family businesses embrace innovation, they usually do so with the type of fervor that is, and the type of commitment and the type of willingness for sacrifice that is like, unparalleled usually I feel above and beyond yeah 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 yeah. it's like it's mm. and you know you're expected to go above and beyond don't forget yes. right like when you're in a family business it's like put your like you know your life aside right like it's all about that so but that, I mean that emotional commitment can lead to them really being excelling when there's willingness for execution I think deterrence though can be very strong right like so again depending a little bit on like you know what kind of industry you're in right like so I we did like a special feature on 
family businesses and craftsmanship, right? Like, so some of these, like, you know, sixth generation and they have one craft, like, you know, for example, I don't know, they've, they've created violins for like the last 200 years or like, you know, and stuff like that. Of course, it depends a little bit on what field you're in, what industry you're in. I think that execution towards modernization, innovation, and, and sort of like enabling your employees to, to live that life that they want to is easier or harder, right? Like, to be fair, like, you know, if you have a purely digital product, like some of our companies do, then quite frankly, that is easier, right? Like, of course, I need people to come to the workshop, right? Like to make my violins, or of course, I have to, you know, they have to come in and they have to learn the trade, right? Like if you want that to be your your business model in the future. And so I understand that it's not just a matter of mindset, it is actually also a matter of like, you know, how much does your industry go along with progress, right? Like, you know, are you part of an industry that is just destined to disappear, for instance, right? Like, are you, is it just not going to be there anymore? Like, and we know that there's a lot of those at the moment, you know, for being frank, like, and there's a lot of industries that will not be there anymore in 10, 20 years, simply because the use for certain products and services is going out of fashion or is becoming unnecessary. And so, you know, what happens to those, right? Like family businesses, what happens to them? What do you want them to execute on, Claire, right? Like, that's my big question then, because, you know, what if your business is not a business anymore through no fault of your own? And then what are you supposed to innovate towards, right? And then you're, I think you're talking more than execution. You're talking more about like a total reinvention of, what it is that you're going to be doing with your familiness, right? Like, what are you going to do with this family that, you know, has learned to work together and has this legacy? Like, you know, what do you put that towards? And I think that's a difficult one. And that's, and, and unfortunately, I'm afraid, I'm not sure how many family businesses are going to be able to have that reflection in time, because I think it's a very hard thing to accept that something you've been doing for a long time is not wanted anymore, not needed anymore. I think that must be one of the hardest things to accept, right? Like I remember for us discontinuing the print edition of the magazine, right? And that was just after 13 years, right? Like, so it's nothing compared to having a hundred year old business and suddenly being told, well, no one wants your product anymore. You know, that's like a, when you have space for execution, again, family businesses that will execute, I think will excel. And those that won't, again, it's a, it's a culture of, fear of change maybe and, and and understanding tradition the wrong way. But then I also think like the majority, I really don't know what they're supposed to execute on. I really don't know, Claire. I think it's also not a, you know, we, we sometimes tell these families like just innovate. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but how, right? Like so what are they supposed to do if the whole industry is sort of like slowly disappearing? And if to come back to that example, what if no one wants to become a violin builder anymore? Like, you know, where am I going to get my next generation of craftsmen, for instance? You know, so it's like, it's a, yeah, it's, those are real challenges for sure. Ramia, this has been an amazing conversation. Doug has a few more quick questions focused specifically on you. Okay. These are very quick. Can you give me the elevator pitch of your childhood? We were born and raised in Switzerland as a mix from an Egyptian father and a Dutch mother. And instead of trying to fit in in one place, we decided to fit in everywhere. So next, what societal issue pokes a nerve inside of you? Tech literacy. I feel like tech literacy has not become a universal, universally accessible. I feel like we're elitist about tech technology literacy. 
I'm talking about everything that is currently enabling and will in future enable our day-to-day life and people do not know how things work. Third question, an author that recently captivated your imagination. So I'm like, I'm a, I'm a huge Dickensian, guys. I'm not going to lie. Charles Dickens, I think why he appeals to me so much, and actually Charles Dickens wrote this really interesting uh, there's a lovely, lovely novel, which is called Dombey and Sons, which is essentially the demise of a family business by a patriarch focusing so much on having a son that he ignores his daughter. And it's uh, it's very interesting. It's a it's a little little known one, actually, from him. It's not the best known, but it's actually one of the best I've ever read. I think what I love about Dickens in terms of his relevance today is that Dickens really wrote about a lot of social injustice that was a consequence of sort of like a fast industrializing economy. And I feel like we're today faced with like a similar situation where our globalization has caused uh, similar inequities and inequalities. And and he was very good at uh, creating, by by creating caricatures of people, uh, he was very good at at, um, shining light on these things and the unfairness of it all. And I think there's a lot to learn from from that, I I always say like uh, Dickens taught me how to read people. I've I recognize his characters every day when I meet people. Every day. Last question: If you could change anything today, what would it be? Well, if I could change anything, I would change the thing that will impact and damage the most people, which will currently be the climate situation. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Got much. it. Ravia, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you guys for having me. It's wonderful to to have been invited. The time has gone very quickly. So yeah, it's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you. And that is the end of our 103rd episode and our in-depth look at family businesses with Ramya El-Agami. If you found this podcast of value, then please share it with your friends and colleagues, catchers on Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, or of course on Wonder's own website, wndyr.com. From Claire and myself, Bye for now.